This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. On today's episode, I talk in person with Matt Hill. Matt is the founder and CEO of Start9 Labs, whose mission is to eliminate the need for trusted third parties in the human-computer relationship. They're all about decentralized computing, and they're working on an operating system or operating software to provide to people so they can be outside of the centralized cloud computing networks. This is a really fascinating conversation. And we talk a lot about things that people overlook listening to this conversation, and you're going to learn a lot because I know I did. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We are here in Denver with Matt Hill. Matt, how's it going, man? It's going good. Thanks for coming into town. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad we could uh, make this work. Um, kind of on the end of a little road trip for podcasting with a lot of Bitcoiners, a lot of people doing some great work in de- the decentralized space. Um, and yeah, this is exciting. So, you know, your founder, CEO, right, of, of Start9 Labs, which is the office I guess we're at right now. We'll have to get into exactly what Start9 does because I got a couple questions, but. Bitcoiner, you know, through and through. How did you get into Bitcoin? You know, valuing decentraliz- <clears throat> decentralization. Is this something that was like an epiphany at a adult age, or did you kind of have a lot of these core values programmed into your life through childhood and, and things like that? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> it's a multifaceted question. Yeah. Um, so I um, got into Bitcoin a few years ago when I was. Um, doing a different business. This is three businesses ago now. Um, and I was not a dev at the time. Um, I, I had never coded, uh, at least not meaningfully. And um, in my attempt to find a technical coding developer co-founder for this company, uh, I had interviewed and worked with a lot of different developers. And ultimately, the guy that I ended up working with was like this hardcore Bitcoiner. And so I had never even heard of Bitcoin at the time. Um, I was a, you know, legacy Ron Paul gold bug um, because I believed in, you know, sound money and uh, I just didn't know about Bitcoin. It just wasn't something that had crossed my radar. I wasn't running in those circles. Um, So when it did, uh, yeah, it made sense. And um, not only did I discover Bitcoin through this person, but I also discovered programming. So I actually started kind of hanging over his shoulder and was like, that makes sense. Well, that looks cool. And what the hell is that? And went down a very intensive, almost obsessive um, you know, uh, journey to teach myself how to code. Uh, and during that time, I was also learning about Bitcoin. And so my whole kind of technical discovery, Bitcoin coding, uh, all happened at the same time. But I was primed from an ideological uh, and economic and political standpoint prior to that. So, um, and actually prior to that, I was quite um, depressed to an extent because I was so well-versed in kind of politics and economics and didn't see how we were ever going to beat this monster that seemed to be consuming the world. And then simultaneously discovered Bitcoin and programming. And I was like, 
there we go. <laughs> Technology. Um, so that kind of changed your perspective on like the optimism of solutions to solve the you know problems with the current system. It was the solution. I wasn't aware of any sort of political or social means of solving what I had observed to be Earth's problems. I felt that they were that the incentives were wrong, that this wasn't a matter of just educating people or wanting people to be better, that we somehow had to not only fundamentally change the incentive structure, but somehow battle the people in power. Like they seemed so powerful, you know, following the Ron Paul 2012, you know, campaign. I was like, well, that was an attempt to fight politics with politics. And it was like the best thing I could have imagined. And it just fell flat. Like it was a, it was a non-starter. They just kind of squashed him out like a little bug. And I was like, oh my God, they are very powerful. <laughs> right. And so I didn't really see a way to fight back until I discovered Bitcoin and programming. And so I became obsessed. I like, I hit this very hard. It's very much in line with my personality. I sort of just locked myself in a room for about 18 months until I came out a fairly competent front end developer. Um, and Bitcoin, you know, uh, not expert, but I was versed. I understood it. I read Mastering Bitcoin four times as soon as I discovered it. Um, I was I was making sure I understood every line, and the whole the whole thing. And um, and since then, I've I've been on a coding binge for, for years now. Uh, I am a fairly competent full stack developer across multiple languages and platforms and architectures. And um, so yeah, I just. It was it was a life altering moment for me. Bitcoin slash programming. Was there any apprehension or concerns like coming from you know the gold bug side of things? You know, I, obviously, there's the values that are aligned, but you know you get a lot of boomers who you know still don't understand the value of, of Bitcoin. Um, so I'm I'm curious. It seems like you jo- you just dove right in, but like was that like through you know a period of weeks or how did you kind of really like? get convinced that this was, you know, better than gold. Yeah. Well, luckily I'm not a boomer. Uh, and I was young enough to still have that malleability of mind, but also I, um, am very conscious about not holding, uh, you know, um, unprovable or, you know, unverifiable beliefs. I don't, I don't just believe stuff for no reason. I'm, I'm, I'm very much, it needs to add up. It needs to make sense. It needs to be non-contradictory. And so if something new evidence or information presents itself to me, I'm very, very conscious about integrating it appropriately and not just rejecting it because it's different than what I had seen before. That said, I did dismiss Bitcoin the first time it crossed my table, not because of some belief in gold, but because I had done a quick and um, inadequate analysis of Bitcoin and concluded that because the code was open source, easily copyable, and that I could just go in there and be like, I'm going to copy this code base and call it MatCoin, and boom, how is Bitcoin any better? That was my initial premature analysis. Um, And so I kind of let it go for a few months before, um, luckily, I had enough people around me at that point because I started to run in these circles who were just like, no, you don't get it. It's not the code base that matters. It's, it's the whole thing, right? Bitcoin is a multifaceted machine and technology. It has social layers, it has technical layers. Um, 
it uses real world energy that you can't just spin up Matcoin and replicate. And once I got it, like why Bitcoin was not just some some underlying technology or even collection of technologies, but it was itself a new invention, right? Composed of multiple existing technologies and one new novel one with proof of work algorithm. Um, then I was like hooked and I was a maniac about it. I mean, I was at the time um, doing a lot of different jobs, right? Like while I was teaching myself to code, I had to keep the, the income coming. So I was tutoring uh, high school and college students in a variety of subjects. Uh, I was waiting tables. I was coaching high school track and field. Um, I was building fences and helping my friends start up a Denver fence contracting company. And so I was just like scrapping money together while teaching myself how to code in order to buy Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like every extra dime that I had at this time was just like, that thing is going to be important and was just scooping it up. And again, when I came out of that tunnel, I was like a competent developer with a little bit of Bitcoin. And it was a huge couple of years for me. That's awesome. I mean, that's conviction right there, like um, in its highest order. And, and that's really cool that you kind of dove deep into that. But I'm curious, you know, going from someone, you know, you were convinced you understood the principles and then you did, you know, an 18 month boot camp of dev. What was like the foundational changes in perspective or like what did you learn the most from like being able to understand it from like the dev side of things? Because I think a lot of us, including myself, you know, I'm an engineer, but I'm not a programmer know get the fundamentals you know pretty soundly but i'm sure the guys on the you know the literal front end have a, a much better or a much different perspective on how disruptive this technology is and exactly you know the limitations and things and what we need to do to to keep working on it to improve the network and improve you know things like scalability etc so um during that initial you know um period where I was learning to program, I was very much at the sort of Frankensteining application layer of development where you have no idea what's happening at the lower layers of computer science. And you're basically just using existing JavaScript libraries to throw together, you know, web apps. That's where I was. So I was not like reading C++ code base. Um, and even today, I'm not a C++ engineer, though I have worked my way down in the stack to the point where I actually get some of the lower level languages and, and, you know, networking and all the rest. But um, what I can comment on very thoroughly, even then, was that this wasn't um, purely a sort of like social consensus thing, that, that there was, that there were com digital components, code, as well as the proof of work, that were working together to create a decentralized system. Right. And, and what I learned is that decentralized systems must involve these various components, right? In order to align the incentives to make the game theory work out where decentralization means that you, you are not trusting anyone, right? If there is a trusted party that you are forced to trust, then it's not decentralized. They are now a central component, even if there's multiple of them, right? If you're unable to freely jump between them, like this lock in to a central provider means centralization. Um, and therefore, it means that eventually the incentives won't align and it will corrupt and deteriorate and act against you given enough time. Um, and so I started to like think like this generally about all problems. It wasn't just like, how can we create sound money? It was like, what other parts of my life am I depending on people for and will eventually be screwed as a result of it? Like, what else am I not 
independent. Where else in my life am I, am I not independent? Um, and then you start thinking about like your food <laughs> and your shelter. Um, and for me, what, what I really got interested in, and this actually leads to where I am now, was all my computing activities, right? Bitcoin is, is a program, right? It's a network and a program and ultimately has you know, real world manifestations in, in money. But like, that's only like one small part of how humans use computers, right? We are text messaging each other, we're sharing data, we're sharing um, things with friends and family. And I started thinking about all that stuff and I was like, wow, that's all subject to the same essential problem that Bitcoin had with financial institutions is that all of this stuff is being intermediated and custodied and mitigated by central service providers who can quite easily and do collude together to make sure that, you know, they're getting theirs and you're just part of, you're just part of the system. Um, and so I began to think a lot about this and how you could take the lessons of Bitcoin and apply it to computing uh, more broadly. And with the help of some very smart people who I continue to work with, um, we think that we came up with a way. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah. And I think that's really important too, because I think, I mean, I think it's really becoming quite pervasive in the Bitcoin space now, um, thinking about, you know, everything else in life. And that's why I talk a lot about, you know, health and nutrition and where your food comes from. And there's a lot of initiatives going on to connect that because it is you know, everything, right? If, you know, your money's decentralized, but like you're saying, the networks you're running them on or the, the hardware or the software, um, and then, you know, you're living in a city and getting your food from the grocery store and you're actually not that healthy, like, and you need to go to the hospital, like, you're, you're pretty centralized at a high level. So that's, you know, it's great to hear that. I think it's growing the, the movement to outside of, of just the money. Um, and, what I'm curious is, you know, how how does that continue to grow? How do we convince, you know, people or how do you, you know, market your products in a way that's like empowering? It's from the tech side of things, it's it's quite overwhelming. I mean, to like make this huge switch. And and that's why I talk a lot about food, because it's like I think food's probably the easiest way to become more decentralized. It's uh, you know, something you can actually buy locally pretty easily. Whereas like, you know, your phone or your computer, your laptop physically, like it's hard to become decentralized. And we're so used to these, you know, big companies and the services they provide. I mean, people wouldn't even switch like from an iPhone to an Android, for example, because they're just used to that. So I guess how have you thought about that? And, and maybe we could talk more exactly about the products, you know, Star9 has. But I think that's a big issue with fixing a lot of, very centralized, you know, components of most people's lives. Right. So, you know, you are touching on a fundamental problem that we have to think about every day, which is how do we get people using our technology? Right. First of all, why do we want people to use our technology? Well, we think it's good for them. We think it's good for us. We think it's good for the world. Um, but not necessarily in that order, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm building this technology for me, 
I have a family and I don't want my children's or my information flowing through central providers and custodians. Um, it's dangerous. It is um, undignified. And I'm just, I, I want a solution for myself. Um, secondarily, I want the people in my life who I care about to have that same opportunity. And then as a third order effect, I know that this is generally good for the human race, right? But that's not the primary motive, right? I, I can't care about the world. I care about myself and the people I love. And if everyone does that, then the world will be a better place. But again, that's a side effect. So how though, how do we do that is a, is a huge question. And really there's two, two major prongs to this that I, I have identified and I think are correct. One is that you have to make it easy to do. So it's the convenience angle, which is products. Okay. Like you need to make being independent. So you say decentralized, right? I, I would normally use the word decentralized to refer to the system itself, but any component of the system, I'm saying independent or sovereign, right? Like this node on the network, this human, this family, this computer is not depend upon other nodes or humans for its existence or success. Um, and then when you look at that from the outside, it's a decentralized network. Um, so how do you convince people to be independent, sovereign, right? Um, and the answer is one, make it easy for them. Try to make it as easy as not being independent, <laughs> as being a dependent. Um, and that's really hard to do because when you're a dependent, it literally means somebody is doing something for you, right? They're doing something so that you don't have to. And that's like fine, as long as the incentives are correct, as long as that person has no incentive to screw you, and as long as they're not, you know, overcharging, and as long as, you know, if in an emergency you could do it yourself, it's like it's no division of labor and depending on other humans to produce things that you yourself don't want to or don't have time to or don't know how to produce is fine, as long as the system has the proper incentives. But, you know, so the second one is if there's actually a problem, right? Like say like you have a highly trusting society that has a largely functioning, um, you know, mechanisms for commerce, right? Where you, it's hard to screw other people without getting caught or getting in trouble or whatever. Then you're going to have a hard time pitching a pitching a change at all. Like let's change this system that's working great, yeah. right? Because someday it's going to corrupt and not work great because the incentives predict that evolution. It might take a few generations before the whole thing becomes rotten and the people in power take advantage of everyone. But today it's working. You're never going to convince people to take preemptive, you know, precautionary measures to protect their great-grandchildren. There's like a few people in the world who think generationally and are willing to put up with costs today for a better tomorrow. In other words, most people don't invest, right? They're not investors, especially generational investors, <laughs> and especially in abstract ways, like not just storing money or investing in a, some equity, but like, like skills and societal structures, um, largely because they don't understand how these things play out over multiple generations, but also because it's just a lot to think about and do. So it's un unreasonable to expect, which is why it happens why society deteriorates is because humans are not very good at thinking 
far into the future and in second and third order effects. They're very narrow, present, and simple. <laughs> um, and this is a thing I had to accept over the years that is not changeable, right? You might be able to get a few more people to kind of think in the latter category, but yeah. it's not, it's a losing battle. You're I, never going to win over. I think it's over. that survival instinct inherently like wired into us at the, at the biological level. But there are, there are some people, there's mm-hmm. more people who have definitely done a good job thinking and, generationally, but it's, and I hope it's there's few and even far more between. to come, but you're not going to get the masses, right? Like it's, it's asking too much of humanity. And so what happens is it deteriorates. It gets to a point where the incentives of the system have produced intolerable circumstances where people are impoverished, enslaved, uh, injured, right? They're, it's no longer second order future effects that might affect my grandchildren someday. It's like, I feel this pain today. That's the time when you can get people to make a change, right? There has to be pain. People will not change anything about themselves or their lives unless there's pain. And so a lot of this is just a waiting game. It's just like, we see what's happening. We see the pain coming and we're trying to get people to see it and get them out of the collapsing building as quickly as possible. But the more pain there is, the more those floodgates will open. That's this gradually then suddenly meme, right? It's like everyone has different amounts of foresight, uh, different amounts of uh, energy and attention to pay to these things. Like some people are just working two jobs and have four kids. And like, I'm sorry, I don't have time to even think about this right now. And yes, that's their fault. But at the same time, it's somewhat understandable why they might be late to exit the falling building. They didn't see it falling. Um, because they're so caught up in their own situation, which ultimately is their fault. But again, I I sympathize, right? I get it. Um, so those are the two fronts. One is make it as easy as possible for people to use the alternative independent solution. And two, tell them the building's falling. Education. So education and products. Um, and we at Start9 primarily focus on products, right? We are trying to build an alternative to the centralized, custodial, intermediated computing paradigm that dominates planet Earth today, which is called cloud computing, and replace it with a disintermediated, non-custodial, independent, sovereign computing paradigm that we call sovereign computing. And... Um, I actually believe that our model is inevitable. I do not believe that society can continue indefinitely under the centralized cloud computing model. Uh, It's not to say that we're going to have a quick and easy victory in the next few years. It is to say that if the cloud computing model uh, prevails uh, over our model in the near term, then I predict a prolonged period of suffering for humanity, like potentially multi-generational period of suffering where humanity will literally be under the boot of the 1984, you know, style society. Um, And I believe that Bitcoin and sovereign computing are at the center of that uh, alternative future. It's like, if we choose independence, digital independence, aka sovereign computing, and open source free market money, (laughs) then humanity is probably going to flourish in the medium term. Um, If they get their claws too deeply into the digital infrastructure and the CBDCs. Uh, we're probably going to suffer in the medium term. 
Yeah, let's, I mean, let's get into that because it's like, I, I'm curious, you know, why exactly you think that. I think, you know, people are familiar with cloud computing and their data being, you know, sold everywhere um, by big tech companies and the quantity of like data centers and everything that, you know, Amazon, Google, Microsoft are investing into all this. It's like, I don't even think people realize how, how quickly they're still building um, to keep ramping this up. So yeah, what what is the foundational like main issue and why you think we'll have this generational suffering if we do continue with cloud computing? Is it because of just having everybody's data and having no privacy pretty much? Um yes and no. I mean those are those are symptoms uh you know of of an illness. They are not the most important in my opinion. I mean privacy is a very broad term and is a very important thing. But yeah, let's dig into the problems with the current model of computing and why it predicts a prolonged period of human suffering if it is allowed to survive. Um, so the, I identify four primary problems with the current model of computing, which I, again, refer to as cloud computing, generally speaking. What it means is, is that you are largely using remote controls. Your laptop, your desktop, your cell phone are basically remote controls that are operating a server somewhere owned by an increasingly uh, smaller group of people. Right, like it's you can almost think of the internet as like one giant server that everyone is connecting through. It's not true, but it's going in that direction. Okay, um, and that's cloud computing. It's what we refer to as cloud computing. So the problems with it are number one, the one that everyone thinks of first, which is invasion of privacy. It's this idea that when all of your data is stored on someone else's server and all of your communications are being processed and intermediated by somebody else's server, you fundamentally are not private, right? Like, I don't care about if it's end-to-end encrypted. That's obviously better than if it's not. But the fact that you are communicating through the server still makes many things visible, if not the exact content itself. But in many cases, that is visible, even though you think it's not. And if people understood what this meant, physically speaking, it would be intolerable, right? This is like when you text message with with your friends or family, there's like multiple employees from multiple companies sitting in the living room with you, right? Like you wouldn't have a private conversation with your significant other with four employees sitting in the room just listening. But that is essentially what's happening when you text message or do video chat with anyone, anywhere. And it's, it's, um, it's intangible. It's not apparent that that's what's happening. And so people have just kind of like shoved it to the, to the back of their psyche and don't want to think about it. But that is essentially the case. The problem with invasion of privacy is multifaceted, right? Like I don't necessarily feel the need to enumerate all the problems with like, well, what's wrong with big tech and government knowing everything about you and your life and everything that you do? It's like, there's a ton of them. And I think that anyone listening to this can probably imagine what those are. It can lead to uh, a total totalitarian state. It can lead to persecution. Um, it can lead to extortion, all sorts of stuff. So invasion of privacy is number one. I was just going to, I wanted to ask about encryption because I think, you know, people have this notion that they think like Telegram or, you know, Signal or WhatsApp is like encrypted. So their messages are maybe safer, but I don't know what the example was. And I think it was on Signal maybe or Telegram, but the NSA or CIA basically were like, yeah, I mean, we can read all of this. Like, nope, this is like not even a challenge. We don't know. Okay. And that's kind of the point is that we're completely trusting. Now, there are multiple software applications uh, out there that tout end-to-end encryption, okay? In order to prove that that is actually what's happening, you can prove that something is being encrypted by looking at the network traffic, but to prove that it is not capable of being decrypted is not within our capability for almost all of these apps. That requires knowing 
for sure that the code that is open source, which some of these aren't even open source, right? So it's just pure trust, is the code that's running on your device. And the only way to know that is to compile it yourself. So Signal has open source code. They're like, here it is. It's open source. That's why you can trust it. But you have no idea if the code that's running on your phone, the app that's running on your phone, was actually compiled from that code. You have no way of verifying that. They could just show you one code base and then ship you a, a different code base that is completely backdoored. Number two, even if you do have a self-compiled, self-hosted client application, so long as you are connecting through a Signal server, right? you don't know what code the server is running either. So they could show you the open source code and be like, here's what's running on our servers, but that's not what's running on their servers. right? So you have to control both the client and the server in order to ensure the code you see is the code that's running. And in the absence of being able to prove that, you may as well be using a closed source app. In fact, I would argue that open source can actually be harmful in this respect because it's a false sense of security. Somebody says, it's open source, it's super private. What does that do? It attracts all the people who want to be super private, which is exactly where the NSA is going to look, right? So the primary, the, the fundamental uh, tenant in cyber security from a NSA perspective is bad people hide, good people don't. So they don't look in the common square, right? It, you, you might be better off just doing unencrypted shit in, and hiding in the noise than trying to use something that's ultra-private because that thing is probably backdoored and being looked at with a microscope. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, everyone has friends that are more serious about this and would be like, all right, like, only use Signal, you know, set the disappear time to, like, two weeks. And I'm like, man, is this, like, really the effective? The harder you try, the closer they will look. Yeah, and that's, and that's the tenant in cybersecurity. And I think that, and I, I also just big on just like stressing out about things that we don't even, they're just not in our control. So it's like, I, yeah, I, I don't think I ever jumped on that train. I mean, I'm happy to be on these apps and use them because people prefer them. And I think it's a good thing, but yeah. Well, the good news is that it is under your control with what we do, right? We make it possible to do what I just described, which is to control both the client and the server and know that the code that's running is the code that you see, and therefore can prove to yourself, without trusting anyone, that your data and communications are private and secure. There we go. That's so, why we do what we do. Okay, so number one was privacy. That was one, okay. Okay, that's the first problem. Number two, censorship. That's the second one that people tend to jump on, which is that if we're all using Twitter servers to do our social media interactions, and Twitter gets to decide who has a voice and who does not using algorithmic um, you know, shadow banning or just straight up kick you off the platform. They can change the terms of service at any time. Um, uh, you know, We saw a lot of this over the last few years and people started taking censorship a lot more seriously. It didn't occur to most Americans that you would see a day when like absolute truths and you know, uh, honest debate were just being flat out turned off. Mm -hmm. um, and it worked really, really well. <laughs> so this terrified a lot of people, including myself, to realize how, how easily manipulated uh, an entire population, uh, how it, it easy it is to manipulate an entire population um, using propaganda and censorship. So um, that's a problem. And with self-hosted, with open source, self-hosted, um, federated or decentralized networks, um, this isn't a concern, right? Nobody can censor Nostr. 
for example, right? Nostr is a, an open source self-hostable network that uses a novel approach to um, client-server relationships to produce a highly censorship-resistant, totally decentralized um, network. And in fact, Nostra could even be used to create a centralized network. It's just a protocol that allows you to create any kind of network you want. But the one that we really need right now is a global decentralized social media network, which has a problems of its own, right? Primarily filtering, spam filtering. If there's no Twitter censors and filters, how do you create a feed that is not full of spam? It's a very hard problem to solve. And Nostra will be challenged to solve it, but it is solvable. And we have high hopes for that, for that network. Um, so that's number two is censorship. Uh, number three is plain old cost. When you use somebody else's server, they're not doing that for free. There's a cost, right? And traditionally, the cost has been your data. Like traditionally, as in the, the, the venture capital bet in Silicon Valley for the last 20 years has been give them free software. You are the product. Mine the shit out of them. Sell it to advertisers. That's been their business model. Um, and you, so you've been paying for it just in an indirect way, in a way that most people didn't understand. And so we just accepted it for the convenience and wow, that's free. Nothing's free, right? Like you're paying something. Um, but now that people are waking up to this, like even the boomers, right? Like people are waking up to this idea of like, wow, I said something to my Alexa the other day and then Facebook started showing me ads about it. And it's like, clearly there's some data collection in, in, in happening here. And so what they're doing is they're pushing back. The consumer is pushing back. And unfortunately, to an extent, the way that consumers often push back is they beg politicians to protect them. <laughs> so people are like, ah, my data is not private. Dear government, make companies protect my data, right? And it's like, oh, God, like you really don't understand how the world works. But, but, but at the same time, it is producing this very real consequence that companies are no longer able to monetize, to mine and monetize data to the, with the same ease and to the same extent that they could five years ago even. They're required now to tell you what they're taking and if they're selling it and more and more providing you the option to opt out. And I don't know anyone who says yes, not one. I don't know one person when presented with, can we mine the shit out of your data and sell it to advertising? They're just like, sure. <laughs> Nobody does that. They just say no, which means that revenue stream is drying up. Right? The bet that venture capitalists have been making for the last 20 years is drying up. And it's being replaced with the only thing that it can be replaced with in a custodial intermediated, intermediated computing model, which is subscriptions. So you can bet, and it's already begun, that over the next few years, every single piece of software that you use that used to be free, the free tiers will become increasingly small such that you will need to purchase some level of subscription. Either they will bombard you with ads to the point where it's making you go crazy, or they will limit the functionality of the software to the point where it's unusable, such that you have to sign up for some nominal subscription fee per month, right? And then those will go up as you become increasingly dependent on the software, which means there's going to be a point in the next 10 years, probably less, where people are going to be spending real amounts of their monthly income to use their cell phones and laptops to do ordinary daily things that used to be, quote, free, that they used to pay for with their data. And maybe they'll be able to opt into not paying the subscription fee if they allow their data to be mined. And now you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do I pay with my wallet or do I pay with my privacy? 
And this is a very undesirable state that nobody is going to want to be in. And so they're going to and already are looking for alternatives. How can I do normal things on my phone, like data and text messaging and whatever else, password management, without begging Apple to, or anyone, Google, to let me use it, not pay for it, and not mind my data? Like, how can I just use a computer? So that's number three is cost, which we think it might actually be the primary driver for adoption of our technology is it's not this privacy and censorship, these more ideological kind of second order intangible effects, but more just like, this is hurting my wallet. Is there a better, cheaper way to do these things? That's usually what drives people to change is pain in the wallet. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Yeah, and I think, well, that has like a cool, you know, tie obviously back to the, the fiat monetary system and, and Bitcoin, right? Because these companies just, they just have to keep making more money. Yeah. Like they have to keep growing. And if, yeah, the main income source revenue stream is, is drying up because people are waking up, then yeah, those subscriptions, they might seem cheap at first, but yeah, I can totally see that really skyrocketing. Yeah, I mean, we've seen a proliferation of subscription uh, services in the streaming world, right? Where it's like, used to be able to subscribe maybe to like one streaming service and just get a ton of content. But now it's like each channel, each company has their own streaming service. And each one is between five and $10 a month and rising. And it's like, not that people should be watching a ton of TV and, you know, subscribing to 18 streaming services, but they do, right? Like your average American family has like six or seven subscriptions to streaming services. And those are growing. That's a meaningful amount of money to a lot of people in this country. And they're going to, and already are, again, looking for ways to do it cheaper. Um, so that's number three, which, again, we think is a very important one. Um, and uh, number four is one that people do not think about very often that might be the most important. I, I, I don't want to rank them. It's very important. Is the fact that most people don't realize is that the internet is a war zone. There are people battling in cyberspace, people, individuals, companies, nation states, three-letter agencies, you name it. They're battling in cyberspace. There is a war for data, okay? Hacks happen all the time, and they arise from many different sources. When you have a cloud computing model, what it means is that there are honeypots of data and power, right? Control the pipes own the data. This is power in a war, in an information war. Controlling the sources of information and the flow of information is real power. And so there are very powerful people all over the world trying to garner control over these servers that are housing everyone's data and process everyone's information. They don't care about you. You're a civilian, but your data is on that server. It's like living in a city that's under siege. The enemy is not attacking you. But that doesn't mean a bomb isn't going to drop on your house. What do you do? Get out of the city. When there's a war taking place, when there's battles, you don't just stick around and keep going to the grocery store. You need to get out of town. You need to opt out of the war zone. 
and people don't realize that cyberspace is a war zone and that your information is on probably a hundred different servers just laying around on servers that are being attacked daily. And when they get breached, which they will with 100% certainty, my, my stance is that every server worth hacking will be hacked, period. And the reason for that is because hacking a server is a matter of hacking a person. This has nothing to do with encryption, right? This has to do with human fallibility. Every single server has a corollary human, at least one, usually multiple, who have the keys to access the server. Otherwise, the server would be unusable. If no humans could access it, then it has no purpose in this world, which means every server, no matter how much valuable information is on it, private keys, etc., has some human with access to it. And that human can be hacked. That human can be bribed, blackmailed, socially engineered, tricked, you name it. Humans are fallible and they get hacked. That's how hacks happen. Hacks don't happen because of, hacks rarely happen because of like actual software vulnerabilities. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just not how they happen. Hacks happen through social engineering. And so you're going to get hacked many times. Every server that your data is on that has any value at all is eventually going to be hacked. You might not even know that it happened. They may or may not disclose it depending on how honest they are, what the rules and regulations are, et cetera. So take that as you will, but you don't want to be a casualty, right? In a war that you didn't opt into and that you're not even being specifically targeted in. So get out of there, get your data off of those servers. Don't use those servers to relay your communications. Use your own. So again, that's, that's what we offer. Yeah, I think... It's almost become so like prevalent in society that, I don't know, people dismiss it. I mean, I see sometimes it's like, oh, your password is like been found on a, you know, data breach. And it's just like, oh, sometimes it's like, oh, well, that's just my password and you know, I'm just going to keep using it. But, you know, I could see it's like you could be a casualty, you know, today it's like if your bank account gets hacked, like you're pretty secure. But like what happens if everything starts to get worse and worse and then you're just not a priority and yeah, you could be totally screwed. I mean, there's people who get totally screwed right now. Like, sure. Well, the hacks that we really need to be concerned about are the, the hacks of the people who are supposed to, like, like NSA database hacks. Yeah. Right? That might be good in certain ways, but also, like, oh boy. You know, you, you can imagine if Google Drive gets hacked. Like, seriously. If Google, if Google has, like, a serious breach, okay? The ransomware emails that would result from that would be like, we know a lot about you. We have pictures that we know for sure people in your life would want to see and you don't want them to see. And um, we know all those people because you also use Google for all your contacts and email. So like, we're literally going to show everyone in your life these pictures unless you send us some Bitcoin. Like, Wait till that happens and then watch people run away from Google servers. Okay, but Something like that to some extent, is inevitable. I don't know if it'd be like some global, widespread, everyone is hacked type of scenario, but those types of hacks are already happening. But the more valuable those servers get, the more incentive there will be for groups to attack them. And internal betrayal. The more incentive there will be for someone inside who has the keys to sell out, right? To be, accept a huge bribe and leak everyone's stuff intentionally. Um, 
So anyway, those are the four. And the, do we need to pause? Okay. And the biggest um, problem, so those are the four problems with cloud computing. And if that's not enough for you, right, here's the future, if this is allowed to persist and why I say we're going to have a really bad time. We're already, you can already imagine the bad time that results from those four things. But now apply those four things, not just to the digital data sphere of computing, apply them to the physical device sphere of computing, which is the era that humanity is entering, right? This whole, like, I use computers to store data and conduct text messages, that's the beginning of humanity's relationship with computers. Where humanity's relationship with computers is going is into the physical realm. Increasingly, devices are becoming smart, right? You have started with smart speakers, and then it was like doorbells, and then thermostats. And these things are, you know, meaningful, but not critical, right? But start projecting more cars, door locks, right? These already exist. Lights, electrical grids, like everything is being linked up to the internet. And in the future, near future, there's going to be, you know, robots. I call thermostats robots. Basically, any device that's connected to an internet providing a service from you is a robot technically. But I mean what most people imagine when they hear the word robot, which is like actual things that are moving in their house, like some vacuum cleaner that's just going around, right? They, those exist, and it's linked to the internet. But eventually, you're going to have like personal assistant robots, like humanoid robots that can actually like harm you <laughs> if they malfunction type of stuff. And when these are plugged in to the mothership, and the mothership gets hacked, hacked yeah. or just wants you to control you, you have no recourse, right? Like think about lockdowns, the idea of lockdowns, where it was this like, you know, almost honor system where it's like, not there's a mandate to not leave your home and unless you're doing something. And of course you could leave and then say, I'm doing something and there's no way to enforce that. And it's just like this, it's a mandate, but it's not really enforceable on any real scale. With automatic door locks, there is, right? <laughs> With control over the thermostats, there is. Like we can... We can cause so much pain in your life, right? They could do this just by controlling your bank account too. Like if you are detected to have left your house, which we know, of course, because you're wearing your smartwatch, which you have to wear, by the way, if, you're, if, it, if your heart rate disconnects, then we know you took it off and suddenly we start deducting money from your bank account. So you have to wear your smartwatch. And now that you're wearing your smartwatch, we know exactly where you are. So if you leave your house, then we start deducting money from your bank account. Oh, and by the way, you can't really leave your house anyway because we just forcibly locked the doors. You can't undo the deadbolt. But you have plenty of food because we can see what's in your refrigerator. We can tell the weight of each shelf of your smart refrigerator and know that you have enough food to survive for two weeks. So at the end of two weeks, we're going to have an automatic car deliver some new food to your home. It's like you're just, a, you're just a dependent worm at that point, right? And that's where we're going. And so, you know, I don't think that there's like this sinister evil plot necessarily to like, there might be, to just enslave everyone and make them these dependent, you know, house-ridden worms. But... Um, the incentives point to that progression, right? That we're moving in that direction. Um, and uh, that is people's red line. I think that a lot of people have just been like, yeah, so they have my data. 
who cares? I'm not a bad guy. I'm not doing anything. And of course, they're wrong when they say all that. It's like, you don't understand, right? You don't understand how politics works, how history works. This is dangerous. But they will get it when they can't open their door, right? Or when there's, uh, the energy grid is overloaded. So like, we're just going to like- That's already happened. Turn off your Google thermostats. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> that's a red line for people. Even normie, super normie people, that's a red line. They're like, wait a second, you can- physically control my world now through the internet you can murder me through the internet you can it's just like oh boy like we need an alternative we need an alternative model of computing because everyone myself included wants the smart devices you should right we're not there's no going back we're not going back to the caves people can choose to do that but humanity is not love it hate it whatever it's going to be a smart world you can't stop the progression of technology. No, and nor would point. you want to. I want robots to serve me. I want them cooking my dinner and doing all those. It's like, I, I can do more things. I can be more creative. I have more time to spare. Like, I want robots rather than human servants. This should be a universal want of people, right? Like, why have underpaid humans doing things when you could have robots doing them? Yes, it necessitates a new economic model altogether because then what do those people do when robots are doing everything else? And this is a different conversation. But, um, but it is happening. And it is a desirable future, I believe, so long as we solve the economic angle of it, which Bitcoin helps with. Um, but, uh, but if it's cloud connected, if these robots are actually owned by Google, owned being defined as who controls them, they're not really my robots. They're, I'm, I'm literally a, I'm a, I'm a pet. <laughs> they, they control me. I don't control them. So we need a computing paradigm that enables the smart device future, but those smart devices being the true property of the people who own them and completely under those people's control. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. I think it's like, well, first off, what you're saying is like, you know, it's, it's the moving of the goalposts, right? And I think that's like why COVID woke a lot of people up because it was like so gradual for so long. And we didn't really know how much data they're, you know, they're taking and what's going on. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow. Like, no, no, like you can't just lock us down in here and make us wear masks all the time. So it's like, I'm glad that that happened for that because I do think a lot of people woke up. But then I think it's really easy for people to just go back. Like they'll, they'll, they'll whim and they'll cry about big companies being terrible, but then they just go back to the normal life because there's not much that they think they can do. So I guess the question is, how do we convince them? We're not going to. I've actually written off the majority of the human population. I focus on the, on the children. We need, we need two generations of kids, right? Um, Lenin was right. You know, you give me two generations of children, I'll give you a nation of communists. Um, we need to say the opposite. You give us two generations of children and we'll give you a world of sovereign individuals, right? Like, it's all about the children. Full-grown adults, they, they can change their mind on the margins, but you're right. They're just going to backslide right back into where they were probably even worse, right? Because of the experience itself. It's like, it's too much. It's too much stress. It's too much to think about. It's too much change. People are busy. They, they don't, they're just so low dopamine anyway. I mean, it's like this whole negative yeah, feedback correct. loop. Right. Of it's, society. it's just not going to happen. Right. I welcome anyone of any age to make a change, take the leap, protect themselves, protect their children, contribute to the future. I welcome everyone. We welcome everyone, but I also don't expect a big flood of, you know, 
full-grown humans to adopt our technology or Bitcoin. We need to get, we need to get the kids um, because they are impressionable, right? And we need to get to them before uh, the extremely powerful, uh, you know, multimedia and schools get to them, right? So homeschooling, um, not even homeschooling, unschooling, like stop the the pattern. <laughs> we need to let humans be humans. We need to let them dictate their own growth. We need to be there as guides, um, teach them to think independently, um, to think non-contradictory. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm totally on the same page there. I think it's like, it's almost a lost cause sadly enough, but then how, how do we coexist or how does that transition happen? Because it's like, if we have this decentralized group minority, very small amount of people operating, you know, outside the system, it's going to be looked down upon by the, you know, powers at will have been, they're going to try and control it. So I'm curious, you know, how does that coexist or does it, or is it? You are talking about an extremely complex, uncertain future, right? Um, there's a phrase fog of war. Uh, I believe that we're already in it. I believe that it will increase. Um, I don't know how this ends. I don't even know exactly what happens between now and the end. I have some hypotheses and according to those have developed strategies and am capable of pivoting very quickly, both personally and as a, as a organization. Um, and you need to be reactive. You need to be aware and reactive, um, and, and figure it out as you go. Uh, that's how, that's how wars are fought. Um, and there is a war for the future right now. It's a very unique kind of war. Um, it's a cold war in a certain sense. Um, try saying that to people who are actually dying, but there is no total war tanks, atomics being dropped all over the world right now, which is a real possibility. That is my biggest fear is that it turns hot, right? That, that the, the existing, um, forces in power will not accept the, um, demotion of power that Bitcoin and all sovereign technologies pose to them, that they will instead burn it to the ground. That is my fear, is that they would rather destroy it than lose control of it. And if they do that, if they are crazy enough to opt for destruction and death, there isn't much we can do about it. Bitcoin doesn't prevent uh, the US military from using weapons. Um, it does disincentivize it. But again, that it assumes a rational actor with his hand on the button, which we cannot assume, <laughs> right? We're, we're in the third act of humanity's beginning here, right? This is, our, this is our beginning as a species, in my opinion. We're still earthbound, but it's the third act of this beginning. And in the third act, it's like, we don't, know what's going to happen right there you could absolutely find we could absolutely find ourselves with some legitimate sociopaths with their hands on the nukes and it could go awry very fast um and i don't think it will i had to place a bet and i am placing a bet that's not where i'm putting my money if i was putting my money there i would just have a bunker in the middle of nowhere and i would just like live with my family and live out my days i'm not doing that I'm fighting back because I think that we actually do have a fighting chance of avoiding the war, right? Not the Cold War that we're already in. That's, that has to happen because you have two op 
opposing forces and ideologies jockeying, you know, jockeying for humanity's future. Literally what wars are for, right? Wars are not frivolous things that we do for no reason, for fun. Wars are about irreconcilable differences, important irreconcilable differences where it's like, well, you're not going to give in. I'm not going to give in. One of us has to die. <laughs> and luckily, war has evolved today to be more information-based, where it's like not one of us has to die. It's one of us is going to be left out economically. Somebody's going to you know, just lose. And that's a better kind of war. Um, but like I said, it could turn hot really quick if the losing side decides, fuck it. I don't want to lose. Um, and that's my fear. That's my main fear in life is that that will happen. But absent that happening, I think we have the advantage. I really do because the incentives align. Um, I can't imagine a future for humanity under their way. Like not a, not one I want to live in, not one anyone would want to live in. So it just doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't see it. Um, I think that history is, is on our side so long as we can avoid the war. I think that's important because there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of like doomerism in our space, health space too. It's like, we're all screwed. Like, you know, and then some people in the normie world are like, oh, well, we're all screwed anyway too. Like why even bother? I'm very vehemently against this like mindset. I think it's important to be realistic, which is literally everything you just said. You know, it's important to consider the possibilities of what's going on. It's important to consider how important these things are. But it's important to know that we have solutions or there are things that you can do to empower yourself, empower your family and, you know, set yourself up to where you can be on a, in a better position or on the right side of, and, and then of course, you know, educating others. But obviously there's always a small chance that if you do all of that and really shit hits the fan, then it is what it is. But at least you can put yourself in like a pretty good peace of mind and move others in that direction as well. So I, you know, personally, I'm very optimistic and I feel very empowered. That's why we do this show is to empower people because people like you are building companies that are solving some of these problems. And I, th I think that's important. We do too. I do too. I mean, I um, am quite optimistic, right? At the end of the day, I, um, Nihilism, apathy are diseases. Um, they are the result of a beaten dog, right? And, you know, fuck you. Seriously. Like, if that's, if that's, I don't deal with nihilists. I don't negotiate with nihilists. I don't negotiate with beaten dogs, right? People who are just like, oh, we're, we're fucked. Get out of my, get out of my life. Get out of my line of sight, right? Like, just move aside. Let the people who are doing something um, do it without your your negative voice. So um, I am realistic. Uh, I do try to calculate probabilities. But ultimately, um, like even athletic endeavors, you've got to game plan and position, put yourself in a position to win and then hit this fucking shot. You know what I mean? Like execute, win. Like, And that's all we can do, right? Don't call the game before it's even entered the second half. Um, this is going to take a while. You know, I was on the with Marty uh, on Tales from the Crypt last year, and he asked me how long until we win. Because <laughs> he thinks we're going to win. I do too. I told him 70 years. Wow. Yeah. 
That's another thing. I think <laughs> it's, it's just I'm sorry. I just this is not. This I, is I, not a two minute game. It's I, a- I think you're so <laughs> right too, because that's the other thing I think about like often, and it's like Bitcoiners. It's like we're so low time preference, but then everyone's like, the world's gonna blow up next year. I'm like, well, and yeah, and yeah, I want it to go to a million tomorrow. It's yeah, like, no, you really come on, guys. Don't. Remember, like, the why we're of that why we're awful. here. The implications of Bitcoin going to a million tomorrow dramatically raises the probability of a nuclear war. Because what does it take for Bitcoin to do that? Like something must be breaking in dramatic fashion for that to happen, which is not what we want. You have two minutes of ecstasy before you evaporate. You know what I mean? It's just like, no, we need to be you know, honest uh, and realistic about our enemy and about how to overcome this enemy responsibly. Um, we don't want to burn it to the ground, right? We want to save as many people as possible, uh, facilitate a smooth transition if possible. Um, you know, like our enemies, we should not be quick to tear down society. Society is falling down. That doesn't need our help. Um, what we need is to build off ramps and alternative parallel solutions and then try to convince as many people to jump ship as possible, right? We're building lifeboats. There's plenty of room. But it takes time. It, it takes time for people to become aware of the lifeboats. It takes time for them to understand the need for the lifeboats. It takes time for them to trust in and be, know how to operate the lifeboats. Like these are all things. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the lifeboat has to work. <laughs> you can't be taking people off of some sinking <laughs> ship onto a sinking raft. It's just like, Noster ain't ready. <laughs> okay. Bitcoin's kind of ready. But not really. We don't have the layers on top of it yet to really accommodate a global economy of, you know, micropayments. It's just not ready yet. The Lightning Network is not ready, if it ever will be, right? Like, it's ready for use. It works great. But there are still question marks about its inevitable scalability to accommodate Earth. Now, can there be multiple networks, layer two networks that operate in parallel? Absolutely. So, great. Keep building, right? But also entertain alternatives. Like we need to, we need to be thinking about all off-ramp solutions here. And you know, at Star Nine, we're not, we're not building, um, we're not building Bitcoin. We're not building Lightning Network. Um, we are making those things uh, usable <laughs> in a non-custodial, um, sovereign manner, right? Like anyone can use Bitcoin through a custodian, through an intermediary, but you're not actually using Bitcoin. They're using Bitcoin. You're using them. You're not using Bitcoin. We need people using Bitcoin directly, right? In the in the right way, and that's what we try to make easy. We try to eliminate all the middlemen and custodians and give people direct access to their own node, their own keys, uh, to the various applications that utilize Bitcoin and its uh, higher layers, and then everything else: text messaging, cloud storage, and everything else. Right? Like you should be able to do everything on your computers without involving uh, intermediaries or custodians. Yeah, I I mean I'm so on board with that. I think the slow transition or slow adoption is is, is necessary. 70 years, that's yeah. People it's cuz it's two generations. Yeah, can wrap that's where their that head. number comes from. Okay. Right, can, it's two more full generations of children. And and I think that's fair to be honest. I think people have this notion it's like, you know, the average global reserve currency age is 100 years or whatever and it's like you know, that's 
from what the last 500 years okay that's five data points like this no well, i also i also don't think the u.s dollar will remain the global reserve currency for 70 years i don't qualify that as victory that's not my my long yeah there's going to be a weird there's always what is this victory weird mean, right? like, like one generation middle ground where who yeah, knows well, what happens like when 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 we ask when are we going to win right yeah. well, what does that even mean what constitutes winning right is it when the dollar dies that's going to happen pretty soon that's not winning we haven't i i define winning as when we have created a society, when there exists a society where, this is interesting, I don't know if I've ever actually tried to like pin this down, okay? So I'll try right now off the top of my head. How would I define this? A, a global society, right, where the majority, I don't have an exact number off the top of my head, but let's call it 90%, okay? Where 90% of the world's population exists in a in a meaningful state of freedom financially physically digitally where the majority of humans on earth or let me put it this way any human on earth who who is so inclined can reasonably through reasonable effort achieve a sovereign existence right so with reasonable effort mm-hmm. i can grow my own food in a way that I don't depend on other people. I can use computers in a way that I don't depend on any corporations or governments. I can conduct financial transactions and have access to financial tools without dependence or permission from anyone. Um, I can reasonably defend myself uh, physically and digitally without depending on other people. I am not beholden to uh, extortionary taxes or taxes at all, right? Like that you as a human can be born grow up in and live in a world where you have no masters. I want that for the vast majority of the human species. And I want it for anyone who wants it. There will always be people who self-enslave. There will always be a, a subsection of the population that feels inadequate to survive on their own. And that can be minimized through education and through proper you know, child rearing and teaching people how to survive and how to think. But you will never eliminate. I think it is a losing endeavor to try to eliminate poverty or to try to eliminate suffering, all you can do is give people the opportunity. You can create a society where anyone who is willing to think and work can achieve a sovereign independent existence and not only have their basic needs cared for, but can actually live in a degree of comfort. I think that that is very possible within 70 years, that we can get to a point where we can kind of call Earth free. Um, maybe that's overly optimistic. I think it's, uh, I think that's a good definition of like winning. I think it's what we should all be striving for. Everyone has the opportunity to be free. Yeah. Sure. That sounds like winning to me. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to maybe ask about the technical side of things because obviously it's going to relate to star nine but maybe on the bitcoin side of things first you're talking about you know how we're just not ready you know what what do you think is a reasonable time frame to get to like pretty you know large scale adoption from a technological perspective like 10 years yeah i was gonna say 10 years i think i think bitcoin is bitcoin and the bitcoin ecosystem are 10 years away from okay Anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, we say that today, like, hey, Bitcoin's open to anyone, but if everyone showed up, we'd have a problem. 
right? Like yeah, it is and, open to anyone, but it is not open to everyone. <laughs> and it's challenging um, for, you know, a lot of people just from a tech savvy well, perspective. I mean. When I yeah. say open, I don't just yeah. mean it can be done. I mean, it can practically be done by people who have no idea what they're doing. Um, there is an over tendency right now to scale Bitcoin through intermediaries and custodians, even amongst Bitcoiners. This is becoming increasingly acceptable to be like, well, people aren't going to hold their own keys. They're not going to run their own nodes. They're not, you know, like just let's, let's in, implement some institutions that can do it for you. Um, I'm not against people doing that. I'm for freedom. Like you can absolutely spin up a, an institution that takes custody of people's Bitcoin and intermediates their transactions. Um, but I hope people don't do it. I really do. I, I'm fighting for their independence. I, I want to create technologies and tools that enable people to not use custodians and intermediaries. And I think even many of the custodians and intermediaries in the Bitcoin space would say the same thing, but they're just like, well, this is a stopgap. Stopgaps have a way of becoming permanent. As a software engineer, I know this very firsthand, right? You, uh, it's just placeholder code. I just need to get it working. Well, it's there forever. <laughs> Um, oftentimes the patches become the structure and lead to the eventual collapse of the structure. Uh, it's really important to, to take your time in the early days of infrastructure uh, architecture to do it right. Uh, nothing lasts forever, but you can, you can build things in such a way that, they, that you maximize their longevity um, by just doing it right not taking shortcuts and everyone's in such a rush to become rich, to just have Bitcoin moon that they're willing to take shortcuts to reach widespread adoption. And we're going to get it. Those shortcuts are going to work. They're going to result in widespread adoption and price mooning, but at what cost, right? Like how long does the party last? How much freedom do my great, great grandchildren have as a result of those shortcuts? Um, it involves investment right? And sometimes investment is not taking profits now. It's delaying the... So, I don't know. I'm in it for my great-grandkids who I've never met. That's what I'm in it for. Yeah. I mean, again, I think people, a lot of the Bitcoiners, yeah, including myself, you know, you get caught up in this, you know. Sure, I want to I just want to wanna get, course. you know, I want financial freedom now and I want to, you know, have yeah. a homestead now and I want to raise the family in the perfect way now. But, you know... It's not always, it's never going to be the perfect situation. You can only just, you know, keep grinding and then strive for improvements. And then, yeah, think multi-generational because it might not be your kids. It might be your kids' kids, but you can educate them and still raise them and indoctrinate them in a way that's very positive. And then, you know, it just continues in a positive feedback loop. But I'm curious from Star Nine's perspective. So you said 10 years for, for Bitcoin. Where is Star9's technology today compared to like the Trad system? Like, how does that compare performance-wise? You know, how does it evolve? You know, to getting to that level, um, if it's not there, and yeah, yeah, great question. Um, our product today, and I this would... is server. So you have a hardware and a software OS. Star9 or... doesn't make hardware. Okay, we sell hardware that you can buy yourself from any commodity hardware store on earth. Um, and that is a means of how we monetize our software. 
is that we sell it pre-installed on hardware. Um, because we know a lot of people either don't have that hardware sitting around, and so why not buy it from us? It's not like we're skinning them. It's not like we're you know taking huge margins. Uh, or number two, they just don't feel competent enough to download our operating system and install it on their existing hardware. Like That just sounds scary. And the wider our market gets, the more people there will be who are just like, oh, I just just sell me the device. I want to plug it in. I don't want to install things. I don't. So we actually think it's a decent business model um, to sell something that people don't need for the sake of convenience. Ultimately, our product is convenience, right? And what I mean they don't need is to buy the hardware from us. You need hardware and you need the operating system, but you don't have to buy it from us. You do not need to buy it from us. Um, so anyway, uh, we make an operating system called StartOS. That's what we do. We have minor ancillary endeavors. We've made a few services, like actual apps that you can run on a server. Yes, we assemble hardware and sell it, but these are ancillary activities. What we do, what we spend every day doing, is developing an operating system. Um, and it is a novel operating system. There has never been anything like StartOS. Uh, and the re what differentiates it uh, first of all, it is a Linux distro based on Debian. And what differentiates it from Debian or any other Linux distro or any other operating system like Mac OS or Windows is that the operating system is optimized to enable a normal person to administer a private server. Whereas every other operating system, Debian and Ubuntu included, Linux included, are optimized to enable a non-technical average person to administer a personal computer, a laptop, a desktop, a cell phone, right? If you want to administer a server using Linux, Mac, Windows, doesn't matter, you have to pop the hood and get on the command line, right? Yes, Linux is optimized to run a server. It's what everyone uses to run a server, but you have to be technical, right? There's two Linuxes. There's the server Linux, which requires all sorts of time, skills, expertise. And then there's the client Linux, which is optimized for non-technical people to click buttons, but not to run the server, only to run the computer that connects to the server. So there is currently no operating system in existence that is optimized and intended for a normal person to run a server. We're the first. I actually don't know if we're the first. We're the only viable one that I'm aware of, okay? Um, so uh, that's what we do, is we're trying to be what Windows and the early Apple computers, wasn't then called Mac or Mac OS, but it became Mac OS. We're trying to do what Windows and Mac OS did for personal computers. Because before Windows and Mac OS, running a personal computer in the 1970s was an incredibly hobbyist, geeky, high technical, high you know, amount of energy and time to run a personal computer. And part of the reason for that was that nobody thought everyone would want to run a personal computer. So nobody was putting the enormous effort into being like, okay, let's develop an operating system that makes personal computers accessible to, the, to everyone. And when Windows and you know, Microsoft and uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, and they tried to do this, people were like, who wants a personal computer? Like the university needs one, the government needs one, maybe a large corporation needs one, but like personal computer, right? Nobody imagined that you'd have three on your body 
<laughs> within you know 50 years. Um, and what made that possible, what catalyzed the original personal computing revolution was an operating system that took all the esoteric, advanced skills that were necessary to run a computer and diluted them down into buttons on a graphical user interface that even a child could understand. All we are doing is repeating history here. We are doing exactly what those who came before us did and taking all the esoteric, highly technical skills and expertise required to administer a personal server and diluting it down to buttons on a screen that even a child can understand. And what's even better about our situation than theirs is that we have 50 years of their research to ride on. They had to figure it out how humans think and interact with computers. They were our R&D department. We view Apple and Microsoft, who came to dominate the computing and particularly cloud computing space, as, uh, as humanity's R&D department for an eventual real solution to the human-computer relationship, which must be sovereign. So what we're doing is literally we're the Windows. Windows sucks now. So we're the Mac OS, which is a great operating system. We're the Mac OS of private servers. We enable a normal person the ability to run a private server from their home or from their business. The question that becomes, why? Just like the original question with personal computers was like, why would anyone want a personal computer? And most people were like, I have no idea. <laughs> Just, who needs a personal computer? That's where most people are today with personal servers. They're like, why? Why would anyone want to run a personal server? I just told you why earlier. It's like invasion of privacy, censorship, extortionary subscription fees, counterparty risk of becoming collateral damage in a cyber warfare, the eventual robot takeover of you and your family. It's like those can all be avoided by running a private server. It's that fucking simple. Run a private server in a proper way, in a fully sovereign, non-custodial, self-hosted way, and you won't be subject to those consequences, and neither will the people in your life. So where is the OS at compared to like yeah, that was Windows? No, no, that was great. That was great. Like that was totally necessary because I think people don't that history too. People don't understand that that's kind of how that all evolved, and you know, most people don't even understand how OSs work. And I mean, yeah, where are we? Like two thousand Windows right now, or twenty ten Windows? Like how how are things going? And you know, I think where we're do like, you see the I think we're like Windows ninety two. Yeah, right okay. now. We're, <laughs> we're um we're still on the niche kind of um hobbyist side of things. I have personal anecdotes of hundreds of people in the world who have no business running a private server, like who couldn't in have dreamed of getting on the Linux command line and running the quantity Mm -hmm. of self-hosted software that they are now running and using on a daily basis. They just was a non-starter. They were never going to do it. Who have achieved it using our operating system? So I have real-world evidence over the last three years that our operating system today is in a place where anyone who actually wants to can use it. However, it requires a little bit of attention. It requires a little bit of care. You have to follow instructions, like putting an IKEA table together. It's like... Anyone can do it, but most people call their friend <laughs> to put it together. We're sort of there still. We're not selling the fully assembled thing. You still have to kind of like push some buttons. 
but we are getting much better very, very quickly. Uh, the, the pace of development of StartOS has been very impressive. Uh, and I don't just say that because I am part of Start9 and I'm one of the developers on the operating system. I'm trying to be very objective about that. Like we are, we are moving fast. This thing is getting good fast. And later this year, uh, we will have a major, major release, um, which is our final beta version of the operating system. At least that's the intent, right? Things can change, but based on my understanding of where we're at and where we're going, this will be the last beta version, right? When people download our OS, we're still like, hey, this is beta software. It's changing fast. There could be breaking changes in the future. Um, it requires some care. It's not for everyone, but it's really cool, and there's never been anything like it, and we think you'll be impressed. That's how I describe it to, to anyone who cares to listen. When 040 launches, that language will change a little bit to be like, all right, final testing. Like, we're ready. Come on, more, more people. Let's get some more non-technical people in here. Let's get some people who tend to screw things up, who are non-believers, doubters. Like, I want you in here. I want you to use this thing. I want, I want to impress you. That's 040. 040 is a major improvement on the current operating system, which is 03X, right? We're in the, the, the version 3 series right now. And 040 is a, just a massive change. Like we gutted it. We, we took all the learnings of the last three years of, quite frankly, a, a novel thing. Like we were inventing this, right? Um, and we were fixing it all. Right? 040 is really um, a huge bet by Start9, the company, and by every individual of this company. We think that this is going to be a, a milestone in the history of personal computing. We believe that when 040 launches, it will be a milestone. It'll be the first time when a normal average person who had no business running a personal server can with relative ease come in and run a personal server and do it in such a way that they and their friends and family and coworkers can benefit from it, right? Right now, the server that we sell, StartOS, uh, regardless of what you're running it on, is a little difficult to use because of networking. Networking has been the major kind of pain point with our product. It's how do you talk to the thing? Well, it's really easy if you're home, right? If you're in your home on the same Wi-Fi network as your server, well, then you don't even need to go out to the internet. You can literally talk to this thing on the local area network by visiting an IP address mm -hmm. or by typing in a URL.local. However, to make those connections secure on the local network, meaning somebody else connected to your Wi-Fi network can't sniff the traffic and see everything that you're doing, you have to like download a certificate from your server and install it on your computer and trust it in your browser. And it's like some people are just like, oh no. <laughs> it's like a four-minute endeavor, but it still scares people, right? Like it was a it was a holdup to getting people to actually use their server. Then when you leave your home, you get to do that again. No, when you leave your home, the only way that you can reach the device in your home, because this is how networks and routers work, they create a private network in your home. Otherwise, all of your home would be exposed to the internet, which is super dangerous, uh, is that you have to somehow get through into the network. And the easiest way to do that, shockingly for most people to realize this, was Tor, was to basically circumvent the NAT by using the dark net, the Tor network, to access a device in your home. And so today, if you leave your home and want to use your server, you have to use Tor. That's weird to people, right? Some people are scared of Tor. They're like, Darknet. I have to download the Darknet browser and visit a weird website. It's like 
publickey.onion. And it's not like, you know, hello.com. It's like this weird looking thing and it's using the dark net and I'm scared. And I also have to like change a setting on my computer. And maybe that's going to be, people are scared of things that are unfamiliar. And so those two things have really been a challenge for us when it comes to like getting normal people to run a server is they're like, Ugh, I need to use like IP addresses and VPNs and Tor. And why can't I just go to like mydomain.com and use my server? Well, later this year, you will be able to. <laughs> so we listened. We agree. I don't like .com. Right? I don't like the legacy internet. I hope we kill it someday. We actually have plans to kill it. Right? I do not believe that humanity needs the legacy internet as it exists today. When I say that, what I mean, we call it ClearNet, right? And ClearNet is the combination of many technologies, but two standout technologies. One is DNS, and the other is SSL, TLS, right? It's encryption and hostname resolution, where it's like, I can go to google.com, right? And safely, I can visit google.com safely, or at least the illusion of security and safety, because of DNS and SSL. There are servers in the world that when I type google.com into my browser, it tells me what the IP address of Google is so that I don't have to type an IP address in, right? I can type in a google.com, something that is human friendly. Secondly, I know that the website I'm looking at comes from Google, the company, because of SSL, the HTTPS, right? And those two technologies have come to basically define what we call ClearNet. And we are going to enable ClearNet on a Start9 server later this year, such that you will be able to spin up your own blog, your own website, your own BTC pay server, your own Bitcoin node, your own Lightning node, and have these things accessible on domains that you control so that you and your family can chat with each other and share photos with each other. And you can have an e-commerce store and a blog and a website that are at normal domains. What you are sacrificing in doing this, the cost of doing this, is that you are now exposing your server to the ClearNet internet, which means it can be subject to denial of service attacks. It is no longer anonymous, right? The, the, the people who are running the DNS servers, the SSL certificate authorities, the corporations that own those things, and the government that owns them, or the other way around, um, all know that this is your site. Like, it's yours. So if you put things on that site that are no good, like you can now be held accountable for that. Whereas before, if you were hosting a blog or an e-commerce store over Tor, it is anonymous. You could do this anonymously, privately and anonymously. Um, so everyone gets to make their own choice. Nobody has to do any of this stuff. Nobody has to use Tor. Nobody has to use ClearNet. It's what is your threat model? What are you trying to expose to the world? What are you trying to use for yourself? Choose how what kind of networking solution works best for you, given your threat model. And all of it will be super easy, right? Like it will be buttons on a screen where you'll be like, oh, I want my BTC pay server e-commerce store to be hosted on, you know, store.matthill.dev. And you push two buttons and it's on store.matthill.dev. Uh, that is groundbreaking, right? Because that normally would have taken a highly technical person a long time to figure out and was completely inaccessible to anyone who was non-technical. Like there was no way prior to start OS 040 coming later to like run websites and e-commerce stores and blogs and Bitcoin nodes and lightning nodes from your home over ClearNet without having an enormous amount 
of experience and skills related to self-hosting and networking in particular. And we have diluted that down to buttons on a screen that a normal person can do. And we're probably going to piss off the ISPs. Yeah, I was going to say, like, do you... have you have any case studies already or tried it to where you think? Our stuff is now running on ClearNet domains from Start9 servers in the wild. So blog.start9.com, which is alive right now, you can go visit it, is running on a Start9 server. Behind a NAT, it works. We just haven't finished the graphical interface that's going to present to the user. So this is going to work. No, that's awesome. I mean, I mean, that's so exciting. And you're saying that's coming later this year? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah. That's cool. We don't provide release dates, but... Yeah, whenever. Soon, soon. When it's ready. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I think the options, you know, again, you kind of, that makes sense, especially just there's a lot of, you know, forward-facing people. I mean, myself, like, if I want to do, like, blogs or something for the podcast, say it's like, yeah. It's got to be clear now. Yeah, I'm not anonymous. People aren't going to visit your, yeah, you don't need to be anonymous. Yeah. But people also aren't going to visit your tour blog. It's just, you need to meet your customers and followers where they're at, which is on ClearNet. Eventually, as I mentioned, we have plans to do away with this thing, right? We are going to accommodate its existence for the sake of adoption and expansion, but we don't need them. We don't need their internet, right? We don't even need the ISPs eventually. Start9, as part of our roadmap, has plans to integrate, and this is more near-term, by the way, to integrate IoT in a plug-and-play fashion, right? In 2024, we will introduce our first IoT devices where you'll be able to hook up a camera, for instance, a security camera inside your home, outside your home, that will, with no configuration or effort required, plug into your Start9 server that's already running in your home such that you will be able to go anywhere in the world and watch live video footage of your home without anyone even knowing that the camera exists. No Dropbox servers, no Google servers, Dropbox, um, Dropcam, right? No Google servers, no nothing. It's just you, your devices, your server, and your phones and laptops all connected on a private anonymous network from anywhere in the world. That's number one. Number two is that we will eventually take on the ISPs um, because they are the final boss, right? Our device and all devices on earth right now that are connected to the internet rely on an internet service provider to establish, to grant them that gateway to the internet, right? Like you, you, they're the gatekeepers. And um, eventually, to overcome those gatekeepers, we would need to implement a um, grassroots-style mesh network to bootstrap people onto a global network, right? So eventually, uh, there won't be some monolithic Comcast that like you pay for internet, and then they like open a pipe to the internet. You will be able to bootstrap onto the internet through side channels, through mesh networks, through your neighbor, for instance. The way that we'll begin is that one person in any given geographic region will cut like a, a big pipe with Comcast. They'll be like, I, you know, I, I'm opening this huge gateway to the internet and I'm buying it. And then you, the neighbors or people living in the apartments next door, don't need to cut their own deal with Comcast. They would just bootstrap on the internet through the neighbor who they trust. And then eventually, that neighbor who has this huge deal with Comcast won't need Comcast because they will actually, via you know, uh, satellite or tower, connect to some other hub that, so you can, you can build a global network, an internet, that does not rely on um, a couple monolithic service providers. 
Um, and that's just sort of the end game, like beautiful vision that is going to take many years to to. Could you do realize. that right now? Like if you wanted to cut a deal with Comcast for your neighborhood, like could could you do that? Or is that like illegal? Um, or not good, even good possible question about technically? The le- good question about the legality. Uh, I don't think people have ever really tried it. <laughs> so I don't think there's a lot of precedent. Um, I could be wrong though. Uh, you can build mesh, mesh networks. Mesh networks exist. Uh, but somebody eventually has to have the pipe to the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can form like a, a local network, like you and your neighbors, you know, could, like companies do this, schools do this, they they form their own little internet. Yeah, they right? split like the well, bandwidth. They, they, they allow multiple. everyone who's on this network, who's authenticated to the network to communicate with each other, but there's no internet access, mm-hmm. right? If my computer has data on it and your computer has data on it, we have our own little internet. Like we can form a microcosm internet, but neither of us can get out to the broader internet. Okay. And so it's easy to build local area networks and it's not easy, but doable to build mesh networks where there's this like unauthorized or uh, unauthenticated access where it's like these computers are just bootstrapping each other. Uh, they're not, they're not like uh, charging necessarily. It's just a means of getting onto a network. Um, and you can do that using wires. People will actually run like cables from one house to another to link them together. Um, you can do it using Wi-Fi. You can do it using towers. Um, there's a lot of experiments taking place. I'm actually not an expert on this yet, but I'm roughly aware of many endeavors being taken towards building better and better mesh networks. Um, but, but eventually, you want to connect to the rest of the world. And that's where the problem comes in. It's like, how do you? How does my neighborhood, which has successfully meshed and networked together, connect to the other neighborhood? Because now you're dealing with physical space, right? So you have to. The signal has to leap, and it, not only does it have to leap, but it has to be extremely efficient. Otherwise, everything would be very slow. So fiber optic cable has been the way, but that cable is physically owned by somebody. You can't just like take over that cable. It's literally their property in the ground, and so. Somebody has to cut a deal with them if you want to use the cable. So eventually we're going to have to lay our own cable or we're going to have to come up with increasingly powerful and sophisticated non-cable-based means of sending signals, which, of which there are, are plenty. But again, research is ongoing. It's going to take a while to eliminate the ISPs. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I'd never thought about I mean, I, I realized how important that would be, of course, you know, from the internet perspective. But that's cool that it's kind of like, you know, on all fronts and, and there is you know, a theoretical solution there. So, yeah. but awesome, Matt. So where can people find out more if they do want to, you know, be staying on top of the latest OS revisions, but try it out now, star9labs.com, best place? Star9.com. Or Star9. Yeah. Okay, sorry. So yeah, officially our name is Labs, but we don't go by Labs. We go by Star9. So Star9.com. Um, we're on Twitter at Star9Labs because Star9 is unavailable. Um, and our operating system, StartOS, is available for free download uh, from GitHub from our documentation, which is at docs.start9.com. Uh, more and more these days, people are DIYing, which we highly encourage. Go to our docs, download StartOS, install it onto your laptop, uh, desktop, mini PC, Raspberry Pi. If you have a computer laying around from 2015 that you no longer use, whip it out, install StartOS on it. It takes a few minutes. And you now have a fully functional server running in your home that took a few minutes to set up that you can now use and access from anywhere in the world uh, with impunity, privately, anonymously, in order to begin doing things that you would normally use Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon to do. 
and increase your sovereignty. It's not an all or nothing game. That's actually the one piece of advice I want to leave with everyone here is that we see a lot of hesitancy to adopt a sovereign computing model because people feel like it's this huge dive into an endless pool where they're like, oh my God, I like have to, I use Apple and Google for so much stuff. Like I can't just switch over and not use them. It's terrifying. Like what happens if power goes out? There's all this fear. Don't do that. Set up the server and dabble. Try something. Just start off with a password manager. That's my recommendation for everyone, regardless, or a Bitcoin node. That's an obvious one too. But password management, great. Download StartOS, install it on your old laptop, mini PC, or buy a device from us, and install Vault Warden Password Manager and stop using central third parties, trusted third parties, to store your passwords so that you can access the internet. Install Vault Warden, take control of your own passwords so that you can navigate the internet and have long, complex passwords, different long, complex passwords for every single website that you visit and know that those passwords are being physically stored on a device in your home, fully encrypted, and only you have access to. That's a very good feeling. When people get Vault Warden set up for the first time and realize, one, how easy it was to set up, and two, how incredibly private and sovereign it is that they're in total control of all their internet credentials without another human being or company on earth involved, you sort of sleep differently that night. It's this interesting, like, it's like your first tattoo. You get addicted. It's like, wow, like I am, I have the power. Like nobody can hack my passwords now. Even if you physically take the device out of my home, you don't get my passwords. Like only I have them. You need my master password and my 2FA credentials. And only I have those things. So Awesome. Con- convince me. I think that's that's perfect. I got an old personal laptop. I'm there you go. I'm gonna give it a shot. So that's it's so exciting. I mean, thank you for all your work on this. Everyone at Start Nine, I'm Start Nine, and this is like incredible. This is what we need more of. So thanks so much for having me, Matt. Thanks for coming on, and thanks everyone for tuning in. Thank you too. All right, all have right. a good one. See ya.